Oh, Celia. We're awake over here, Rabbi. All right. We're coming. We're coming to um, as uh, for Canadians will appreciate this. It's called Seder Night in Canada. That is a play off Hockey Night in Canada. <laughs> so I must uh, confess that when I was a kid, Seder Night versus Hockey Night, ooh, especially, you know, back in the day, you know, the original six, well, way back. <laughs> Rocket Rocket. <laughs> was well okay that's already uh, i think that was before my time but uh, the uh, you know the uh the two things came at the same time the playoffs and the seder night and hockey night i mean you know canadians are the frozen chosen right that's why we have ice <laughs> and we play hockey so the choice between the two, sometimes, you know, the middle of the Seder is, uh, you know, uh, uh, not coming from an observant home and, uh, and being in an observant environment. So, uh, you know, you'd uh, go run to see what's on going, happening in the playoffs. But that's way long ago. You know, the truth is, though, question is, You know, the playoffs, you don't know what the score is going to be at the end. So you're excited. And back in the day, you couldn't tape it and watch it later. So it was only, you know, you could only get it live in real time. I don't know, maybe there was real people back then. And today, you know, everything is virtual. <laughs> Menachem Hill, is that you or is that... Is that a real background? Are you really in that uh, where you were? <laughs> I, I was there at one time. That's Martinique. Ah, okay. You were there. Okay. Yeah. Once they're always there. That's what they say, right? In Martinique. So. <laughs> so you don't know what the score is going to be at the end of the game. So you got to, you know, you're, you're intrigued and you're watching it, you know, to the to the bitter end sometimes, right? If your team lost. But when it comes to the Pesach Seder, you know what's going to be, you know what the next step is, you know what it's going to be at the end. You know, you know you're going to be stuffed to the gills. <laughs> and you know you're going to eat matzah. And then you know what else you're going to do? Eat matzah. And then what else are you going to do? Eat matzah. You know all that. So like been there, done that. Like what's this, the intrigue going every year, the same thing, I mean... You know, my wife says, you know, please make sure you uh, introduce new ideas that our guests didn't hear before. The truth is we didn't have guests for the last two years. So whatever I said three years ago, I'm, I'm sure I forgot. They for sure forgot. So, you know, but yet there needs to be something new. 
but it, in the end, the actual mitzvahs are not new, and the outcome is going to be the same. So, like, what's the point? You know, maybe hockey night in Canada, there we don't know what's going to be. So there's the intrigue, and that holds us. So what's going to hold us over here? Why should it hold us? L'chaim. Now, of course, when you're a kid, so you know, your parents tell you, you got to be there. What do you mean? The family's getting together. It's, uh, you know, one time a year that uh, everybody is gathered together. And I remember being at my aunt's home and, you know, she polished the, uh, the silver and, you know, and I remember the, the, the roast and uh, yeah, it was, but that's not strong enough. That's not good enough. That's not really what's going to hold us. So what's going on over here? So tonight in preparation for Pesach, I'd like to share the very beginning of the Seder or what we call the beginning of Magid at least. Um, the beginning of telling over the story and to get an appreciation of the very beginning because the beginning is a bit, of course the foundation of the entire night, and the entire Magid, the entire story, which is most of, you know, the time is spent on. So let us get right into it, and let us, um, excuse me, take it apart and understand it. And when we understand this, hopefully we'll understand the, uh, the entire basis of the Seder, and why it is really important that we be there. <laughs> You knew that too, right? You knew it was important, even if we don't give the class. And you know, you have to be there. But why? Why is it so important? So let's get to it. Okay. Let's share the screen. Tonight's class is in honor, as actually every week, is in honor of Rabbi Shmaria Katzen, my Machutin, um, who my uh, dear son Mendel is married to his uh, daughter, daughter Shana, who lives literally four doors down from, from us, with Kenaina Ara, uh, wonderful Kindalach, and uh, in honor of his, uh, of his neshama, these classes are sponsored. So again, why must we repeat the same Seder and the same conversational themes every year? How is the Exodus still relevant to us today? That's our question. That's the theme today. So let us begin from the beginning of the Magid. If you don't understand what I just read, it's because you don't know you're, you're not up to date on your Aramaic. You need to brush up on your Aramaic. This is an Aramaic. What do we say? This is the bread of affliction that our ancestors ate in the land of Egypt. L'chaim. The commentators are mystified by this. The Abu Jaham asks the question, why do we refer to the matzah on the table as the bread eaten by our ancestors in Egypt? Didn't our ancestors eat Matzah after they left Egypt because they were rushing to 
to leave and had no time to let their dough rise? What's, the, what's going on over here? Look at the beginning statement of the whole story. Is this is the bread of affliction that our answer is a where? Not going out of Egypt. Doesn't it going out of Egypt? Ba'ara de Mitzrayim, in the land of Egypt. Well, it's true that the Jews ate, you know, in the land of Egypt. Indeed, they did. You know, it's a good uh, staple to give that, you know, is, uh, is dry, uh, a dry staple. You know, when Manashevitz began uh, making, do you know where they began in America making matzah? In Cincinnati. I don't forget, somewhere in the 1800s. And who bought most of the matzah? Anybody know? They made a killing. Non-Jews. Non-Jews, non not Jews. Non-Jews, right. Yeah, non-Jews. Why? Because it's it's a it's a dry bread. It's 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 in the end, it's you know, it, it's made from wheat. It's you know, it's like bread, a staple, and it's dry. So you could travel where? Cincinnati was like a, a point uh, of, from the east to the west that people would travel and go through Cincinnati and they would get their matzahs over there. I'm, I'm sure it was beyond Cincinnati that it was uh, shipped to or, or sent to. And uh, that way they would be able to travel out west, right? Um, so this also, you know, the, the Jews ate matzah in Mitzrayim, a great staple for slaves. But that's not the point. The point is we ate the matzah going out of Egypt, right? That was part of our freedom, that we didn't have time to let the dough rise, and we ran out of there quickly. That was our freedom. So I'm making mention about it in Egypt. It doesn't seem to make sense. Furthermore, that's the first part of the intro to the Haggadah. Then we say the Whoever is hungry, come and eat. Whoever is in need, come and participate in the Paschal Lamb. It's really nice that we're inviting people when they're hungry to come, but obviously we don't. You know, I mean, you could say it's tongue in cheek because you know you're sitting at the table and you're inviting people to come. But well, whoever's at the table is already there. And, you know, it's not like in synagogue you were asking people. It's not like a week before you were asked. I mean, you do ask the people a week before and two weeks before, right? But what's the point over here to emphasize whoever is hungry? When, first of all, they're not even going to come to the Seder at that point, right? Because whoever's there is there. Secondly, aren't we celebrating our freedom tonight out of slavery? Isn't that the highlight so why are we speaking about the people still suffering and hunger? Why are we making the point? And especially when the point is that we're not even going to take care of them at that moment. I mean, unless they're at the table. And if they're at the table, then like, you know, hey, why are you pointing them out? Are we pointing them out? Is that? No, obviously not. But then this is the night of our liberation. So it doesn't, why are we mentioning this? Furthermore, you know, Everything that we ex exhibit on that night shows liberation. A beautiful table you're supposed to set. We recline on our left side like kings of yore, 
showing our liberation. That's how you're supposed to eat the matzah, drink the four cups of wine, right? Showing our good fortune. And what do we emphasize here? The unfortunate. We're highlighting that, the needy among us. Now, you might say we're Jewish, so therefore we want to be guilt, feel guilt, you know, like here we have opulence, we're going free, and there's still some people hungry. Oh, okay, that's that was a joke. <laughs> so we're highlighting it. Then the final part of this intro to the to the Haggadah is Hashtahacha. This year we are here, next year we will be in the land of Israel, now we're enslaved, in the year to come we will be free. So the same question is over here. Why are we highlighting the fact that we're once again in exile? And that we don't have true liberty. The liberty that we had when we went out of Egypt, that's been taken out away from us, we've been exiled. Why are we speaking about exile now when this night is about freedom, is about our liberty? Shouldn't we begin the Haggadah with a declaration of thanks to God for and gratitude show of, to God for our redemption? Why are we beginning with suffering, both in Egypt, in the first part, and today that we have those who are lacking? And furthermore, this is in the opening paragraph. Like, if we need to mention it for whatever reason, fine, but not in the foundation of the evening. Not in the first paragraph, which is uh, the, 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 the guidepost on what the whole Haggadah is about. The whole Haggadah is about freedom. And this seems to emphasize things. The matzah in Egypt, the impoverished now, that we're enslaved now. Next year we'll be really free. What's going on? And in general, why are we mentioning the shortfalls that we have? Um, the truth is, after the exodus, we had many shortfalls as a people. Where do we go wrong? We left with wealth from Egypt. We were free. God gave us liberty. And at a certain time, it seems like we strayed from the intended path. And uh, we're, you know, still stuck in the same place. And therefore, every year, been there, done that. Another Seder, another Seder, more matzah, and some more matzah. And if indeed we did stray from the path, which is obvious because we're in exile. 
did we just reverse everything that happened when we went out of Egypt? Egypt, we got liberty. We lost the liberty, went into exile. So does that reverse what happened going out of Egypt? You know, and hence maybe that's why we suffer so much, you know, anti-Semitism throughout the centuries. That's why we suffer in general, maybe. So what exactly is the relevance of going out of Egypt? Again, we're mentioning here this, the suffering of today, that we are not really free today. And even though the whole night is about freedom, yet we've lost that. So is that reversing everything that we gained? And if it's reversing anything, then what's the point of the celebration? Now, of course, the short answer is no. But how do we understand that? How do, how do we make sense of this? So to make sense of this, we're going to have to go back to the beginning of time very beginning of history of um, Adam and, from all the way to Adam and Chava. See, once we can understand the process of history, so then we'll understand where we're fitting in now with the exodus from Egypt and where we stand today in 5782, 3,334 years ago from the Exodus, to just be precise. <laughs> and, um, and, and to understand how everything fits together. So when God first created Adam and Eve, Adam and Chava, for that matter, all of creation, including you know, the animal, the, I mean the animal kingdom. They all worship God. Why? Because in Ganade, in Garden of Eden, God was very discernible, was very palpable, very real. So they weren't tempted by anything that was not godly. Because there's no barrier between God's revelation and not just Adam and Eve, but even the animal kingdom. So there was no appeal for anything but for godliness. In fact, God instructed Adam and Chava not to eat from the tree of knowledge. The reason why he instructed them not to eat from it, because that would give them an unhealthy mindset. Not the one that they had prior to eating from it, which was a healthy one. That healthy mindset is the mindset that we possess today. as the Arachayim explains. God's primary reason for prohibiting the tree of knowledge was to prevent the human mind from grasping or perceiving the notion of transgression. 
to be focused completely on holiness without conceiving of the possibility of turning from God. This is what King Solomon meant when he wrote, God made man upright. The human was made with only one kind of knowledge, that of holiness. Thoughts of transgression did not figure into our imagination and fantasies at the time of our creation. Ah, but then who came along? The Nachash, the serpent. And he persuades Chava to eat from that fruit that God forbids for our own sake that we shouldn't have a sense of something outside of God. And now that they partook of it, the barrier between us and God became clogged, became hazy to such a degree that it wasn't discernible on earth, God's presence. So, whereas before the sin, all they wanted to do was experience godliness and come close to God. Now, after the sin, that wasn't the prevalent um, sentiment and perception. And therefore, sinful behavior became what was more obvious and prevalent, more appetizing and tempting. This is when they, when they came to know shame. As continues and says, the Orachaim, when Adam and Chava partook of the tree of knowledge, they first became aware of the possibility of transgression and were ashamed, as the following passage attests. And they knew that they were naked and they were ashamed. Right? Ashamed. Why? Because they knew. That they're naked before they they before they were naked, but it wasn't something sinful because they knew only of godliness in their nakedness. But now they became aware. Oh, there's something here. It needs to be covered up because it's not holy. They became aware that there can be something unholy. That now through relations, oh, you could act sinfully. Before that, they weren't even aware of that. So as a result, of course, they get banished from the Garden of Eden, which was the beginning that would last then for over 2,000 years, that the banishment, what does the banishment mean? that God's presence becomes banished. And it became more and more depraved over time. It grew steadily worse. And God became less and less present in the world. Until, of course, Avram Avinu came onto the scene and he started to reverse the trend. As the major says in the following text, when Adam sinned, the divine presence ascended from the first heaven. When Cain sinned, it ascended to the second heaven. And when Enosh sinned, it ascended to the third heaven. When the generation of the deluge of the flood sinned, it ascended to the fourth heaven. When the generation that built the Tower of Babel sinned, it ascended to the fifth heaven. When the residents of the stone sinned, it ascended to the sixth heaven. And in the lifetime 
of Avraham, the Egyptian sin, and ascended to the seventh heaven. Right? Now godliness is extremely obscure. Seven, what does it mean? Each heaven means God's more and more removed, more banished, as it were, right? So what does it mean that Adam and Eve were banished? What does it mean? That God's presence was banished. There was a, a barrier separating them. So godliness is now so obscure that except for the two of Noah's grandchildren that were aware of God, this became a very low point in humanity. But then things changed around. Um, give me one moment, Vilma. I'm just going to read this uh, next. Opposite those rose seven righteous people who returned the divine presence to earth. Abraham merited to usher it to the seventh heaven to the sixth. Isaac, Yitzchak arose and ushered it from the sixth to the fifth. Yaakov arose and ushered it from the fifth to the fourth. Levi arose and ushered it from the fourth to the third. Kahas arose and ushered it from the third to the second. Amram, the father of, uh, of Amisha, arose and ushered it from the second to the first. Amisha arose and ushered it to earth. So Amisha gathered all the people of Mount Sinai and God issued the Ten Commandments and the divine presence was returned to earth. Finally, as it was similarly, similarly to in the Garden of Eden. And once again, God is revealed on earth. A, the, as it first, the, God was removed. And now, slowly but gradually, reversed that process. Uh, Vilma, you have a question? As you were speaking about the difference between Adam and Hava's state, it, it occurred to me that their state was completely different in a spiritual sense. They had no sense of the physical. They had more of a direct contact and closer presence to God. So right. that um, fruit that they were not supposed to eat brought them immediately like into physicality and removed from that spiritual closeness that they enjoyed previously. Right. And what you're saying is that throughout the generations, that separation and that lack of awareness um, just uh, grew. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Okay. Yep. Now, so now that to move forward on this thought, thank you, Vilma, it wasn't merely a restoration of what was lost by Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, right? In other words, the return of the divine revelation was the same as it was in Garden of Eden. It was actually more profound than the original revelation of God in, in the Garden of Eden. How so? Because the original revelation in the Garden of Eden was initiated by God completely. Completely and utterly. God created that reality, the, the Garden of Eden. Whereas the revelation at Sinai was initiated by the Jewish people. Uh, it was initiated by the Jewish people 
in their going out of Egypt, and in particular, in going out of Egypt, in their statement, Nasa that we will do and we will listen. What does that mean? It means that Adam and Eve were created into a world where they perceived godliness, and God was the obvious reality. And, and that perception wasn't because they accomplished something. It was given to them by the Almighty. Wonderful and beautiful. Um, but it's not through their efforts. It's not through their engagement. It, was, it came totally from above, totally from God. Right? Whereas, what happened afterwards, where God, his presence becomes more and more removed until Avram comes and starts to bring it down. Well, that was through his efforts. And for the, few, the, the forthcoming generations of Yitzchak, Yaakov, Levi, Kahas, Amram, and finally Moshe Rabbeinu, right? Avram started without any guidance from anybody. We call him Avram Avinu, the Hebrew, uh, Avram Ivri, rather, the Hebrew, which means, Ivri means that he was on one side of the world against the entire world, because the entire world were pagans. So he had to come to it on his own, truly from within, right? And this is what occurred. And this is what... Um, the distinction then between Adam and Eve and then Moshe Rabbeinu and the Jewish people. So Jonathan Sachs explains this very eloquently in the following reading. The Jewish mystics distinguish between two types of divine human encounter. They call them Esarusadilat respectively an awakening from above and an awakening from below. The first is initiated by God and the second by mankind. An awakening from above is spectacular, supernatural, an event that bursts through the chains of causality that at other times bind the natural world. An awakening from below, on the other hand, has no such grandeur. It is a gesture that is human all too human. Yet, there's another difference between them in the opposite direction. So in the first indication, something from above is more grander, is more spectacular. Whereas the initiation from below is a human endeavor. It's not so, not so grand. It's not spectacular, right? But now he's going to say there's another distinction, but the opposite direction. In other words, there's something more grand about the initiation from below. An awakening from above may change nature, but it does not. But it does not, in and of, uh, and of itself, change human nature. Right? The sea can be split, but human nature is human nature; it doesn't change. In it, no human effort has been expended. Those to whom it happens are passive. While it lasts, it is overwhelming, but only while it lasts. Thereafter, people revert to what they were. An awakening from below, by contrast, leaves a permanent mark. Because human beings have taken the initiative, something in them 
changes. Their horizons of possibility have been expanded. They now know that they are capable of great things. And because they did so once, they are aware that they can do so again. An awakening from above temporarily transforms the external world. An awakening from below permanently transforms our internal world. The first changes the universe. The second changes us. Beautifully said. So, so first we have individuals that have changed. Avram, Yitzchak, uh, and Yaakov, and all the way down to Meishu Rabbeinu. All from within. Now, this would change then when the Jewish people come to Mount Sinai. Because at that point, what did God seek? What did God want in Mount Sinai? What did, what did he want? He wanted me? wanted you? Yes and no. Because he had me and you before, because there were great people before. What he wanted now was a nation. His nation. An entire nation. He didn't want just spiritual giants. Great gifted people. And Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Moshe Rabbeinu. But he wanted an entire nation. Even the ordinary people. And this is the daunting task that Meshach Rabbeinu had, that he had to inspire the ordinary person. Not only to consent to the Torah, but to desire and seek it. Hmm. How's that going to happen? How are you going to bring a people that that's what they want? How are you going to bring them that this is what they want? They want to be God's people. A regular person. You and I, regular people. How are we going to get there? That, that the divine presence of God is what we seek. This could only happen with a very traumatic event that would change the people from within. And this is exactly the purpose of the enslavement in Egypt, as the Alter Rebbe explains in Torah Or. Egypt is a proverbial furnace, like a refining pot of, for silver and a kiln for gold, it says in Proverbs. A kiln separates the base metals from silver and gold so that the silver becomes pure rather than a mixture of precious and base metals. Egypt, too, acted as a kiln. The harsh bondage working with clay and bricks refined the Jewish people and separated the bad from the good. Wow. Remember, we mentioned before, God didn't want us Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of knowledge because now they would be susceptible, perceptible, and therefore susceptible to sin to, because it would become tempting. And indeed, it, that's what became. It becomes the, um, 
the default of what we seek in life. Have a pleasant life, an enjoyable life, a pleasurable life. What does a trauma do? What a trauma does is strip away all of the external externalities and you come to something much more fundamental. We just went through two years of a trauma called a pandemic. And there was a great reset, but a positive great reset is that all of a sudden the important things in life became came to the surface because we were in a proverbial furnace that brought to a refinement that we were able to take the the, the dross and separate it from the pure gold that in the pandemic that what was really important stayed with us the things are extras, just pleasure-seeking things and not fundamental things of, of our lives. Was the dross that kind of drifted away. For those who recognize that the, the, the good in a traumatic experience called the pandemic. Well, that's what happened to the Jewish people in Egypt. It's more than two years, by the way. There were 210 years there. 86 of those years were very harsh labor. But what it did was strip away the natural pleasures that you seek in life. And you learn to appreciate the real important things in life. I mean, they were stripped away so you couldn't have it. That's true. But it, it strengthened them that there's to life much more inherent value to it than you know all the enjoyable, pleasurable things of life. And that's what happened. That's what happens to a person, you know, as they say, that which won't kill you will make you stronger. So the suffering that the Jewish people went through right, made them recognize that the tactile pleasures and personal comforts of life is not what life is defined by and what's important. And sometimes the only time you come to that recognition is when you go through something very difficult, very traumatic, great suffering. This is what it means, the refining pot of Egypt. Refined from the base elements, leaving the basic, you know, things that are not essential to life aside. And that's how an entire nation, not just the pious and spiritual giants, because a pious and spiritual giants, when they go through suffering, they come out whole. But here, the same thing happened to the regular people of the nation, of the Jewish people. And that would be the condition that they needed to be in in order to receive the Torah and Mount Sinai. Wow, that's a different way to look at the exodus from Egypt. So that was the plan. 
And it worked to a degree. It worked to a degree. In what fact, in what manner did it not work? L'chaim. Rabbi, I thought we, when we left Egypt, the whole basis of the counting of the Omar is because we were stripped down to, we were debased to almost lack of human, of any human. Yeah, we had to go through a purification process to, to be ready for the Torah coming from Egypt. Isn't that the whole basis of the counting of the Omar? So I don't know how the, how did Egypt prepare us for that purification process? Um, good question. So there is leaving negativity and embracing positivity. In Egypt, what is the what is the kiln doing? It's separating between pure gold and the dross, right? That's taking away the negativity from the pos from the from the good stuff, right? Take the bad from the good. So that's what happened through suffering. That's what suffering ultimately allows a person to look deeper inside of themselves, right? When you go through something difficult, traumatic. Now, unfortunately, many people, they just point a finger at someone else for what they went through. And not to say that that other person may be, you know, the cause of it and is responsible 100%. But how it's affecting you is um, not about pointing a finger at someone else. It's about owning it. When you own it, then you work through it and that, and you grow from there. So that it was from the negativity, right? That allowed them. The counting of the Omer is the first day is Chesed Shebechesed. Second day is Bur Shebechesed. Those are now after leaving the dross behind, now we are working on ourselves with the positive to refine the positive. And that was the second part of the, uh, the preparation. But before you could deal with anything positive in your life, you know, you have to deal with the negativity, right? If, if, if you get angry all the time at your loved ones, right? You, you, you can't, just be loving to, to you know, loving and kind, you know, and just generous, you know, okay, you're angry at your kid, at your, at your spouse, you know, you know, here's 50 bucks, go out for lunch, you know, it doesn't work. The anger you have to get rid of first, you know, for that positive gesture to really mean something, right? Sumera, the go away from evil, then do good. So same thing with God, right? So in Egypt, it was dealing with that refinement in that manner. After leaving Egypt, so then now we could deal with it in a you know more positive manner. Okay, does that make sense? But and and, and so that's the yeah the two part and 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 it, so that fits yeah. Now, so this plan. It worked, but didn't work completely. If it would have worked properly, so what would have happened in the Jewish people's um, um, 
what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, engagement with Hashem. So we spoke about earlier, right? There's two modes, top down, bottom up, right? Top, top down is more spectacular, but it's not lasting. Bottom up is less spectacular, but it is lasting because it becomes integrated. So if this spiritual, you know, kiln that they went through to rid themselves of the of the dross in order to come closer to Hashem truly worked, then that which should have occurred is that when they stood at Mount Sinai, they would be initiating the relationship. They would need God to initiate it. As in fact, he did. It would have been bottom up, not top down. Right? It was top down. It was God who revealed himself in Mount Sinai. The Jews responded to it. Right? But it was him. Now, we already had an instance of that. Where was that? Gan Eden, Garden of Eden. Difference, though, it started that way, right? It started that way from God, top down, nothing initiated by bottom up. So it, that really didn't last. It lasted a few hours, <laughs> right? Here, it was a few, it was from 1948 to... Three uh, to two, uh, 2448. So it's about 500 years later, approximately, right? But the Jews who went out of Egypt were not refined sufficiently to be able to accomplish this. So it didn't happen that way. It didn't happen bottom up, it happened top down. So because it happened top down, so there was a temporary revelation of God, but they were unable. Um, they were, they, 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 as much as they went out of Egypt, as much as there was, again, that refinement wasn't sufficient. So God had to initiate the original revelation, right? And because God had to, um, yeah. Now, so why was it that they weren't able to initiate themselves? So it says, as, uh, as it says the following reading, the Egyptians were bad us. They batted us, as if you want to, in the Hebrew. Not that you can say batted us in English, but if you were to say it that way, right? The passage should have stated that they were bad to us. This teaches us the Egyptians made us bad, sinful, causing us to learn from their behavior. So God made a decree that the Jewish people are going to go into exile, right? They're going to go into Egypt and they're going to be enslaved. 
So he said they're going to be enslaved, but he didn't dictate that they would be spiritually debased, that they would become spiritually coarse and unresponsive to the divine to divinity. That was something that the Egyptians took upon themselves on their own accord. So as a result of that, the Jewish people were not even deserving to really leave Egypt. And that's why it took God an outstretched arm, because God initiated taking us out. God initiated the Exodus not only because he had to overcome the resistance of the Egyptians, but he had to, to, uh, he had to take us out because of our resistance to him, to spirituality. And that's why the experience at Sinai also had to be initiated by God. So even though there was a refinement, but it was a far cry, what was necessary. So God got, has to take it out from an outstretched arm because we're, you know, we want to leave because we want to leave slavery, but do we really want to go and, and how much do we want to connect with Hashem? So it wasn't complete. It was, there was an ambivalence. God has to take us out, outstretched arm. And therefore he has to take us not only out of Egypt, but also has to initiate at Mount Sinai. So this has a long-term consequence as a result. Text number 12. Now, if the Jews had been worthy of redemption, the barrier between the Jews and God would have dis disappeared completely forevermore. Never be remembered or mentioned again. However, because they escaped Egypt in a less than optimal state, the barrier remained. It can still... It, it can still exert influence over the Jewish soul, depending on the measure of its power and stature, which is commensurate with the state of the Jew at any given time. But this now we can understand why God is not discernible today. But even though the measure says earlier that God returned to earth at, at Mount Sinai, right? But had we been able to discover God in a genuine bottom-up way, from within, awakening from within, within us, then the revelation would have been so authentic to us, it would have changed us. But since it was top down, it changed the world, but it didn't change us. Not sufficiently. So most importantly, it would have had a permanent and discernible effect today, but because it didn't happen that way, it happened top down. Mm. So we weren't ready then. And the effect of that is still here today. So it was a temporary revelation. And God, after he gives the Ten Commandments, and when the Jews sin with the golden calf, then he kind of returns to the first heaven. And he's waiting for us to find him. How? on our own, on our own. This we can understand why if we do something sinful today, it's not as terrible as 
by the Garden of Eden. Because Garden of Eden, God was present. Now he isn't. This is also why the sin of the golden calf is so terrible. Because it was after God was so present. But it's been many years that God has removed himself. And therefore, it's much more appetizing and pleasurable to follow, you know, not the path of connecting to God, than to becoming close with God. Why? Because his presence is real to us. But this raises now two important questions. If the exodus from Egypt did not bring us to a state of permanent spiritual freedom, so why are we celebrating freedom today? And most importantly, we're told in the Haggadah on the night of the Pesach Seder that we have to experience the exodus as if we're leaving Egypt today. But if we're still kind of on the spell of spiritual bondage, Right? We still have the negative effects. You know, we haven't been so refined. Then how can we experience that state of freedom and liberty on the night of Pesach? Is that clear, the question? Yeah? So it's like, wait a second, what happened here? We had some freedom, we lost it. We're still in this quagmire of God is not discernible. So then what are we celebrating? We lost it. So the question on how to celebrate, let alone to experience freedom at the Seder, table, despite the fact that we are spiritually and materially suffering, right, goes to really to the heart of the celebration. Now, without answering this question, our Seder rituals kind of don't make sense. We're celebrating spiritual and physical freedom when we're not free. I don't mean free, you know, free society which, you know, it seems to be becoming more, more totalitarian, <laughs> you know, as COVID showed, <laughs> and other things show. Right? I, we don't mean free society. We mean free that we are in the presence of God. Right? So the, the whole idea of freedom from Egypt was not that we have, a, you know, that we're, we're, we're free, you know, let my people go, was, as the last, the end of the verse says, in order that they should serve me. So the freedom to serve in the sense that God is very open and real and prevalent and obvious to us, that it is not a reality. And yet we're making a night all about that. So what does it mean exactly? So this is the opening three lines of the Haggadah comes to address. 
what exactly are we doing tonight? Seder night in Canada and everywhere else, right? Why is this so central to our lives and so important? So this is the highlight. We have the bread on our table is reminiscent of the bread that we are, the, the matzah that we ate in Egypt. And those that are among us who are poor and needy and that we are in exile, but next year we hope to be in Jerusalem. So the opening paragraph frames our entire Seder celebration in a way that it should make sense for us. So the first two statements are acknowledging the limitations of our Exodus experience. And the last one is explaining why we can and should still celebrate. Let's break it down each point separately. Let's take the first line. And Rebbe explains. Everybody with me? You're following? Yeah? Yep. Following. Yeah. Thumbs up, everybody. Can I see some thumbs up? Or better? Okay. Real, real thumbs. Look at that. Wow. Amazing. Beautiful. All right. Beautiful. Okay. So Rebbe says in this, in a Sikham, The matzah that our ancestors ate after they left Egypt, the one that did not have time to rise before the exodus is described in the passage as matzah that our ancestors ate in the land of Egypt. This emphasizes that the manner of their exodus was not complete. In their mindset, Jewish people, even after the exodus, were still in Egypt, as it were. What does that mean? So the main point of reading this line is that in the minds of the Jews, they felt that they were still in Egypt even after they left Egypt. Now, from a physical standpoint, the Jews left. And they were thrilled to leave. They were thrilled to leave. Bondage. But their minds and hearts, they still identified with the Egyptians. So God took them out of Egypt. But the Jews didn't take Egypt out of their hearts and minds. That's the key. That's why God the outstretched arm. Bondage they wanted to get out of. But that's a physical thing. But their hearts and minds, they were still had Egyptian culture, right? Hockey night in Canada was still a part of their lives. Couldn't take it out of your heart. Got to see what's happening. That's what happened to the Jews then. Denis? Menachem, hello? Uh, but in a way, they cannot be blamed because that's all they knew. In as much as they, uh, they were looking forward uh, to freedom, there was no con they had no conception or perception of what freedom is or freedom would be. So having lived in Egypt all their lives, that's who they were. Free out of the land of Egypt, but still mentally Egyptian. That's, that's how I see it. Right. Yeah, very good and very true. So the point here is not about blaming. The point over here is about a, a reality. And that's important. And thank you for bringing that up. 
Menachem Hillel. That, we, that, we, that when we point out a reality, it's not about to blame, but to understand it and then deal with it from there. So you're right. You know, no one's blaming. It's not about a blame. It's about a reality that from that reality creates a consequence as a, as a result, right? And of course, it just wasn't time for, you know, for things to be in such a manner that they were so refined that, you know, you know, that 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 takes time as we see, as, as we'll continue with this idea and we'll, as we will see. So you're absolutely correct. It's no blame to them. But on the other hand, it is a reality of their situation. And this is the consequence of the situation, right? Now, otherwise, this is the fact. The fact is they wanted out from bondage because that's a physical thing that people can you know, understand that. But their minds and hearts were still in Egypt. They still wanted to enjoy material lives. They wanted to, um, you know, they were still drawn to paganism and in a heathen way of lifestyle. Again, not a, a, not a, a blame, but that's a fact. Make sense? Okay. So they had to work hard to shed such an orientation, but they couldn't manage it all. Not in Egypt with the trauma of Egypt and not even seven weeks in preparation with the Sphira, right? the counting of the Amr, even though that was on the positive, sort of trying to develop a, a greater closeness to Hashem. And indeed, it did, but not sufficiently. That's why, and again, it's not about a blame. This is the fact, right? This is why God, he has to initiate the giving of the Ten Commandments. He had to awaken them from above because they were not moved to find him from below. Why? Because they were yet to shed their Egyptian orientation. I have a question. Go ahead, Andrew. It seems, I mean, we start off, this was foretold 400 years ago from Abraham that God would initiate this. So why would we have expected to the contrary that at that point we would be initiating and drawing down God? He already told uh, Abraham. And the second thing is, is, well, what does God want from us now? He wants to walk with us. In order to have walked with us, we had to leave the Garden of Eden and have two, two temples in order for God to build the third temple. It seems to me that's the whole picture. To get wait, there. Wait, we wait, wait, wait. We're, not, we're in the middle of a thought and we're going to get there. You're jumping ahead, but but uh, you're not you're not you're not jumping off the roof. <laughs> you're you're in a good direction, <laughs> but let's take it step at a time, okay? Um, let, yes, let let's take this first step, and then we'll go to the to the next second and third step, okay? So, how do we acknowledge? So let's go back, right? They didn't, weren't yet ready to shed the Egyptian orientation. 
right? That's why God has to initiate giving the Torah to us, right? Again, yes, it was foretold, but God giving us the Torah didn't mean that it couldn't be initiated from us. It could still have been initiated by us. Fine, this is what it is. So we acknowledge this truth by indicating that the matzah that we eat today is not entirely free of Egyptian influence. And we have to yet make the final transformation and shed our servitude of Egypt. And that's why I say, that this is the bread of affliction that forefathers ate. Where? In the land of Egypt. We're still kind of in Egypt. We're still there. We were there then, right? I mean, sorry, they were there then. Okay, that's then. Let's go to the second statement of the Haggadah. Let's follow carefully, right? Remember the second statement was, why are we mentioning about poverty today at the Pesach Seder? If you want to eradicate poverty, you know, invite people every before the Seder. Why are you mentioning it? And the first paragraph is, you know, a, a statement. So the Rebbe explains in the Sicha. He says, this is the meaning of the second statement sentence of the opening passage. Whoever is hungry, whoever is in need, we still suffer poverty, suffering exile and subjugation because our ancestors remained in Egypt. They, they never really escaped their submission to the culture of Egypt. So we asked earlier, why we continue to be plagued by suffering, poverty, assimilation after the Exodus, where do we go wrong? You know where we went wrong. The Exodus from Egypt was not that pill that we take and heals everything. It wasn't. It turns out the Exodus is only a partial redemption. The beginning of redemption and partial redemption only. That's why our people will be exiled again, like you said, Andrew. Second, first temple, second temple, right? Meaning that we will still be in a state of spiritual and material poverty. That's why there's still so much suffering today. Right? So the first statement is speaking about that the bread of, that we're eating tonight is the bread that was eaten in Egypt. That in Egypt, they didn't leave completely. God took them out of Egypt, but their hearts and minds were still affected by Egyptian culture, way of life. It was still in their minds and their hearts. And that's even today. How so? because we are still in ex suffering today, right? We're still in exile, and we have a spiritual and material poverty amongst us. That's what the second statement is speaking about today, right? So, well, then that leaves us with a very difficult and challenging question. So, if so, if that's our state, it was in Egypt, it wasn't complete then. It was only a beginning and a partial redemption, right? 
And today we still have the needy because we're still suffering materially and spiritually impoverished. So now we're coming to celebrate at the Pesach Seder. And, and we have to celebrate. And not only that, we have to experience the exodus from Egypt and freedom, when in the end, it's not a full freedom, really. It wasn't complete. Not only is it only complete, there's suffering going on around today. How do we deal with that? So the answer to that is the exodus did not seal our redemption. It only opened the door to redemption, that the ultimate redemption that it will lead us to. However, the Jewish people do not rest and stand idly by. They constantly observe divine commandments day and night, each commensurate with their ability. Thereby, their souls escape the barrier a little each day until the time arrives when the good works of the Jews will be will strip this barrier of all power. And at that time, the Jewish people will experience the final redemption, not to be followed by any subsequent exile. So the, the exodus is not a wonder drug. It didn't solve all our problems, right? But it was the beginning of our treatment protocol that is still being administered today. Ever since the Exodus, we've been working to rehabilitate ourselves and the entire world and therefore, and thereby bringing God's initial vision of taking us out, of redeeming us from the Exodus to the final redemption, where there will be, after that, no more suffering, no more going back. It won't be a partial redemption. It'll be the full and complete redemption. So what does it mean? It means the Exodus is not a single event in time. It's an ongoing effort of going into slavery and coming out of it. Going to Mount Sinai, that all continues today. And we find ourselves in difficult straits and we move forward and we see the light of Hashem in that. Every mitzvah that we do is indeed accomplishing that. And that's why we celebrate the night of Pesach, even though the process is not yet complete. And that's the third statement in the Haggadah that proceeds to make this point, as it explains. The passage, therefore, continues and states that indeed we are now here, but next year we will be in Israel. We might be enslaved now, but next year we will be free. The exodus from Egypt opened the path and the pipeline for, of redemption that will lead eventually to the complete redemption next year in the land of Israel as free people. Therefore, we can fulfill the mitzvah of telling the story of our exodus from Egypt on this night and our, of experiencing it this night, as if we have completely emerged from our subjugation to, to Egypt, uh, subjugation to Egypt. In fact, by telling the story of the Exodus, as if we were leaving Egypt today, we are liberated for the moment from our subjugation of Egypt. And thus paved the way to becoming truly free. This is in accordance with the teaching that the entire time span from the Exodus from Egypt until the future redemption is a continual and progressive process of leaving Egypt.
Wow, powerful idea, beautiful idea. So we've been working until leaving Egypt, slowly but surely, every time we come and learn here together, every time that we make the Seder and we don't go to the hockey game, there's a greater refinement from the negativity that you're going away from, the positivity that you're embracing and fulfilling the mitzvahs of eating matzah. You need to eat shmur matzah for the Seder, of course. And you have to eat a, a, about a half, a, a third to a half, a, a third of a matzah, if not more, in order to fulfill the mitzvah. And you have to eat it within six to eight minutes. Got to munch on it. Got to fulfill the mitzvahs appropriately. And when you do this, and we're adding another mitzvah that is um, part of that process of, of, the, of the redemption. It started the pathway with Egypt, being in Egypt, the process. And then that will be the final when we... Uh, you know, through the self-refinement and refinement of the world, uh, engaging in such a manner that we will uh, bring the final redemption of Mashiach now. As, as the previous Rebbe said, next year in the land of Israel, Shana Bavi Yushalayim, that doesn't mean literally next year that we should be in Israel. You don't need to wait until next year to, to go on the eve of Pesach Right, as we say at the end of the, the Haggadah, right? Lashana Bab Yushalim, we don't have to wait till next, you know, the Eva Pesach. It, it can happen now. That is a result. Next year, well, when we are saying the Haggadah, we'll already be in Israel with Mashiach. So this should be um, the rejuvenated excitement that we have of engaging in the, in the Seder, that if we are. Uh, a partner with Hashem in the process of bringing the final redemption. And even though we did it last year, but this year we're going to do it with greater ver uh, excitement, more engagement, deeper understanding, more learning and, and connecting with it. Because uh, we know that through that, there's a greater refinement of ourselves in the world around us that we uh, help to bring to bring to the days of Mashiach. May it be now. Amen. Do you have a question? I see. You have your hand up, Vilma. Go ahead. Yes, Rabbi. You started by saying um, that metaphor about the awakening. So that whole prophecy of awakening was told to Abraham, correct? Uh, Oh, you mean that they that the Jewish that his nation will go into into slavery? Yeah, yeah, he was yes. put yes. to yes. sleep. And, yes. yes, yeah, there was a whole prophecy yes. thing. Yes, yes, yes. So then, um, that awakening that you said from below, the whole celebration of the Passover Seder and everything else, you know that that is done towards that ultimate redemption. That's part of the awakening from below, is that correct? The awakening below is that is that our desire 
to connect with Hashem that comes today from within. The awakening from above was in the Garden of Eden that God created such a, an environment, right? That was godly, pure godliness, mm -hmm. right? Mount Sinai, God initiated and he um, revealed himself in Mount Sinai. That was top down. Bottom up is that we initiate. So what does it mean that we initiate? I mean, God is, is not visibly present and it's very easy to be dissuaded by and tempted by, um, by doing something that's against the will of God. It's a very easy thing to, you know, in our world, it, all, all, everything is, is there before us and present before us that can turn us aside. And therefore, for us not to is, is, a, is a choice that we make. So that comes from within. Um, and, and today, actually, on that note, it's, it's more today than ever before. I, I've said this before that, you know, 200 years ago when you lived in the shtetl and it came Friday night, well, you didn't have much choice about choosing to keep Shabbos or not. You know, there was no other activity going on. You know, there was no, uh, there was no New York Giants playing or, or, the, or a hockey night in Canada, right? There was no other alternative. The alternative, yeah, you know, you're going to make Kiddush on this wine or that wine, you know? So, you know, you didn't, it, 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 in a sense, relative to our generation, that was top down, right? You know, it was given to you. It was given to you on a silver platter, right? Uh, they, your parents uh, lived, uh, you know, you lived uh, next to, to your parents and you were raising your family, you know, so you had grandparents and if you're lucky, even had more family around. So like, you know, you lived in the shtetl well, and, and of course there was no other kind of life. And, and you see that those who opted to, for example, intermarry or whatever, they opted out of Judaism as a result. Today, that's not the case. People be intermarried. It's not a statement of opting out of Judaism. Uh, just, you know, whatever happened, so to speak. But back then it was because, you know, the, the, the shtetl life was such a, uh, a secluded, you know, kind of life that this is the only reality you knew. Today, more than even, uh, you know, than 20 years ago, because today there's no such thing as the outside world being on the outside. And one, even 20 or 40 years ago, the outside world was really out there and you had to go to it if you wanted to engage in the outside world, right? You had to actively go there, right? So today you don't have to actively go there to be have Egypt in your life. You just have it right here on your phone. All of Egypt is right here. And that's, you know, so many people, that's where they live. And now, of course, there's good things to live on there, like, you know, Tanya Rabbi, but, you know, in other Torah things, of course, there, there is positive things. But, you know, that's probably, uh, you know, I mean, that's the reason why it was created and the only reason. But um, so today, you don't have to go anywhere to access Egypt, to access the outside world, the negativity of the outside world. It's in the palm of a person's hand. So it's much more available. So on, on one hand, when you think about this, oh, that's terrible. Uh, yeah, the consequence of that can be really terrible, and and it's and we see that you know what it does to people's lives. I run a 
you know, drug crisis center dealing with addiction. And, you know, um, screen addiction is a serious issue today that we're working on, we have to be working on. And it's, you know, it's, um, it's challenging because it's, it's different. It's new, you know, didn't have that 20 years ago. Alcohol has been around for a bit, you know, uh, other substances have been around for a while that we have some kind of inkling, but this is something brand new. So it, it's there in the palm of our hands. So what does it mean? It means that you made a choice tonight to come and learn. It really came from within. You made a choice that you're going to make a, a Pesach Seder. That's today more from within, bottom up, than it is top down than ever before. Because today there's so many more forces out there that would, you know, dissuade us. It would make us stray. There's much more of that so-called Egyptian culture that the Jews, you know, were subjugate, uh, subjugated themselves and were a part of that more than ever before that uh, for us to overcome. And even when we want to overcome it, it's just, you know, it's insidious in how it's there. So today, more than ever, it is from within. And that's the, the you know, the, the beauty that we have to recognize that any time that, that someone's making a choice to do a mitzvah, you know, what, in a sense, what they're overcoming to do that. And it's huge. It's beautiful. And that's going to bring Mashiach now. So by this, this uh, awakening process is really powerful, but it's really happening at any moment that we're connecting. Yeah. Right. It's happening any moment. Mashiach is happening any time now. Now. Just have to polish the doorknobs. The, the buttons, yeah, the buttons, the buttons. And they never said that the buttons were already polished. That we're all set with our with our our Shabbos finest. We're ready. We're all standing eager in anticipation. Yeah, absolutely. We're the seventh generation, right? We are it. It's happening. There's no there, there, there's no question. The only the only question is, and it didn't happen today. Is only why. It's okay tomorrow. Um, but it's it, it, it's uh, no no question. There's no question that that's the reality. That's the reality. All right, folks. Amazing pleasure. Yasha Rochim to you. We Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Rabbi. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you. Thank you. We will continue Thanks. our conversation. God bless you all. Uh, good evening. Have a good evening. Bye-bye, everyone. Have a good one. Thank you. Have a nice week. Bye-bye. You too. Bye.